welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavic. In this episode, Nick hosts an open show and answers questions, as well as a demo of a cool product from Trimaco. Happy Monday, everybody. I am Nick Slavic. I am the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I'm also the host of this show, Ask a Painter Live. It's a weekly live Facebook show where I use my almost three decades of experience in this trade as a craftsperson, a paint business owner, and living the life of a restorationist. Um, Today's going to be a super cool show. Um, we are going to be featuring a nifty little product that was sent to me. Can't quite show you what it is yet uh, to try out. Uh, and then we are going to go into a live question and answer, ask me anything show. So we are live on Instagram right now and we are live on Facebook. And first we have a special guest with us. Who are you, young lady? Oma. Oma. What's your last name? Slavic. Oma Slavic. All right. Um, tell us something cool about you, Alma Slavic. What do we need to know about you? Hmm. Did you just lose something in your mouth? Mm. Yeah, a tooth. Yeah. You got some teeth growing in. You got some teeth coming out. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, so Alma's in here hanging out with me in the war room. We have a special edition uh, Monday night show. Uh, we're going to get to some business. But first, Alma has something very special for you. Before we get to that, we have to ask, how all of our little children have nicknames. What's your nickname? Pookie. You're Pookie Slavic. Okay, so Pookie, you wanted to tell everybody a joke tonight. All right. Tell us your joke, little baby. What do you call a cow with no legs? Almost Slavic. What do you call a cow with no legs? A ground beef. Ground beef. I love it. Oh, you're the best sister. All right, baby, give a little hug. Okay. Mm-hmm. Love you, baby. All right, okay. go have dinner. I'll be in in a second. Bye. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> okay, everybody, down to business here. So, before we get on with the show, uh, thanks for everybody uh, with the awesome comments, and thanks for uh, putting up with me and my my young daughter Pookie uh, with her jokes too. So um, tonight, I'm going to show you something really cool. Trimaco sent me something uh, to try, and I will show you that in a little bit. Um, but first, let's take care of some business. Um, the kindest thing you can do for this show is to follow Ask a Painter Live, leave me a nice review, leave me a nice recommendation. And also while you're watching, just hit share. Please just hit share. Share it with people who are like-minded like you, like-minded like us. This is basically just a a show where we try to dog whistle to other like-minded, progressive, aggressive trades business entrepreneurs, master crafts people. Share the ethos of what we do. Share examples of what a good happy trades business entrepreneur and master craftsperson looks like so that we can attract other people, other bright minds into this trade to do what we do. And the Ask a Painter live show has connected me with some of the coolest, most interesting thought leaders in our industry. And they gather once in a while uh, in the PCA, the Painting Contractors Association. Uh, in the last couple of years, there, we have been bereft of live in-person events. No more people. The calendar is filling up. Literally, there are multiple events every month. 
There's some big ones coming up here. Corey Leister's having an event, a business building event and a tech event over in uh, Pennsylvania. That is coming up in May yet. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, I believe it's, uh, probably June, uh, check. I have a link here in the, in the show notes. I won't give you exact dates cause I can't remember them all, but the PCA is having a super special bang up event, uh, basically hosted by Jason Paris and I here in Minnesota, lots of thought leaders, lots of big, uh, interesting people coming in here. And, uh, it's going to be a monster, monster event. Come see us, the Minnesota mafia on our home turf. I did not call us that. Somebody else mentioned that. I don't usually go for the mafia thing, but there are, I mean, there is a, um, a whole bunch of really cool people in our industry, uh, associated with the upper Midwest here. And it's lots of fun. And of course, master's classes are filling the calendar again. So, um, there's a, there's a link in here. If you want a master's class, if you want an entire day with me, where it's basically an ask a painter live show. Plus I open up my business. Plus I open up all the things that I do in real time that we're doing as a business right now to you, to give you that perspective. Uh, that's what a master's class is. I take the lessons from the last five years of going from zero to about 40 people and tell you what went right, what went wrong, how we fixed it, what to look for and where we're going in the future. And it is a blast. So I'm not going to waste any more time, folks. This is a ask me anything show. Um, so basically get your questions ready. I already see them coming through on Facebook. Oh my God. I absolutely love this thing. Jesse Allen is going to join me with the uh, cabinet refinishers impact 2020 May 13th through 15th. Uh, that, looking forward to that. That is next week. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff coming up here. So ask your questions, ask me anything, any topic, any suggestion, any question, we will cover everything. So first off, um, I'm going to do a little screen share here, uh, in a little bit. Trimaco sent me a brand new product. Pullover painter pants. These things are not just the bottom half of a coverall. They are specifically built uh, to do a really cool task, which is just cover your pants, take care of them. Now, interestingly enough, these things, which you can tell, see that little bit of shine to them, that little bit of silkiness? These things, these painter's pants, uh, these painters, uh, pullover painter pants are made to go over existing painter's pants and they are polyester. And they are not the cotton, they are not the paper. They're not the ones that tear through right away. These are substantial. These are uh, breathable, they're light. You can feel the breeze coming through them. Um, and they're not just like a quick something to cover too. They are very substantial. They have six pockets in them. So they have the rear pockets uh, in the back. They have the cell phone or the tool pockets in the side here like this. They have the hammer loop, but we all know the painters, we just put rags through these things all the time. Um, adjustable waistband. These suckers go from like 28 to about 43 inches and they're actually comfortable. Uh, they're big enough to move around in. Uh, they're not small, uh, constrictive, things like that. They got the elastic waistbands here. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, like I said, um, anti-static, which is really cool, especially for you fine finishers, you Zach Kennys of the world who wipe down everything with anti-static wipes. As you swish around the job site and move about, you're not gonna be creating a whole bunch of static and, and causing all that stuff really cool lint free as well so some of the fibrous ones the papery ones will actually shed as you kind of go uh as you move around in them things like that um they're known for kind of like the, the the lesser ones the throwaway ones are kind of known for like you know wearing through the knees as you wipe your hands on your uh, thighs like this uh, or you have a tool in your hand sometimes they can cut or fray really easily these are not these are fabric these are polyester but they're not they're not heavy and they're breathable uh, which is really cool very interesting, washable and reusable too. So uh, if you don't uh, wear them out, you can uh, you can wash them, throw them in the washing machine, use them again. Um, boy, the uses, 
Okay, best uses for these things. You can pair them with obviously uh, a protective top, things like that. If the job does not necessarily call for a, a complete uh, coverall, a complete thing with a hood and everything else, um, these are a great, great alternative. So when you think about how to use these, number one use, just a wear layer. Listen, painter's pants are fairly expensive and with supply chain interruptions, sometimes you can't even find your size. So if you want your current painter's pants to go a little bit longer, this is kind of just a wear layer just to keep them safe, keep them clean. You know, if you're working all day on the job site and you got estimates in the evening, put a pair of these guys on uh, and then uh, take them off, leave them on the job site, uh, let them air out there, fold them up on the job site, whatever, and then uh, go on with your uh, go on with your day uh, with your estimates with your clean painter's pants. So again, if you have a dirty and a clean portion of the project, you know sometimes we have little airlocks there where we we go from the area where we prep or something like that into a clean area. Perfect example. Throw something on real quick. Um, keep yourself clean, dust free, uh, lint free, things like that. Um, one of the best uses of something like this, just a substantial reusable sort of uh, pullover painter pants uh, would be think about super hot summer days. It's 70, 80 degrees. You're on the top of a pole building, a tin building, and you're spraying a few hundred gallons of you know um, uh, an industrial coating, a, a metal bonding primer, things like that. You don't necessarily need a top over that. You don't need a full uh, suit with a hood because you're spraying down and you're only about eight to 10 inches away from the roof. So that's not coming up at you like this, but also your boots and your pants and everything are really gonna take the brunt of that force. And you can keep your upper body in like, you know, this is a breathable kind of fisherman's shirt sort of thing here. And you won't be dripping sweat. It won't be constricting you, but also your painter's pants will be uh, good and usable, things like that. Also, you know, sneaky little trick if you're wearing painter's shorts and you don't wanna get your legs full of paint too, throwing on a pair of these things while you're spraying a roof or something like that where you're coming into contact with your legs would be a great, great idea like that. So um, also, if you think about bench finishing, spraying cabinet doors, things like that, most of us in our finishing shops, when we have our spray booth and things like that, we have a cabinet door or a passage door or something, and it's at waist level or lower. And when you're spraying, you don't necessarily need a spray hood on, like respirator, of course, uh, but you don't necessarily need to cover your upper body because in a spray booth or a, a safe enclosure with negative air, things like that, you're spraying down and it's either going down or down and out. This would be a perfect example of something non-constrictive. If it's hot or humid, you don't necessarily need to uh, cover your top. Bottoms only, you'd be spraying like that. Also like bench finishing, if you're stain and varnishing, like if you got your wool applicator for stain and you're just going at uh, new levels, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, waist level, stuff like that, and you don't need to cover your top, perfect example of, listen, only cover what you need to and then uh, reusable too. So uh, it's a great thing. So, all right, let's see what we got here. Uh, oh yeah, here, I will. I got my little bench here. Now, one of the coolest things about these things is we are treated to lots of protective wear. And one of the downsides of them is, you know, you kind of have to like get rid of some other your clothes, uh, like work boots and things like that in order to get things on because they're kind of restrictive. Now, I am wearing my Red Wing Irish Setter work boots. They are big and, well, I shouldn't say big and clunky. They're big. They're not like a pair of tennis shoes where they're sleek. They got a substantial heel, a big, thick uh, leather kind of surround for your ankle and stuff like that. And these suckers go right over the top of it. So I'm going to throw these on for you right here. Give you a quick fit check. So elastic waistband like that. We got uh, pockets in the back, pockets in the sides as well, standard pockets like this. And then we got the tool pockets or, you know, obviously one usually gets used for a cell phone like that. So right over the old red wings like this. And they gave you enough elastic, which is really cool to go right over some big substantial work boots, which I like. 
because it is a pain in the butt, especially when you've got lace-up work boots uh, to get those things on like that. So yeah, little elastic waistband like that, clustering on the bottom. They fit really well. Like sometimes when we get those uh, coveralls, overalls, things like that, I really feel like they're made for like rotund people uh, and triple uh, XL and things like that. These actually, I'm probably the most average guy ever. I'm 5'9", I'm about 190 pounds, give or take 195 pounds. This is about as average as they come and they fit great. And they can go up to about a 43 inch waist if you need them and they're comfortable. They're not constrictive like that. And they're comfortable around the, uh, the ankles too. So yeah. Cool little, little new thing for all of us painters out there. Another option, um, yeah. And we like to have options, everybody. So I'm gonna rock the fit for a while here while we do this. And I'm gonna start going through questions. I'm seeing questions pour in all over the place. So I tell you what, um, for now, uh, Mr. Klostermeyer, good to see you from uh, Missouri. I'm gonna go through Instagram first here, see how we're doing. All right, oh man, lots of familiar people. I'm seeing a couple people uh, here on both. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, let's get through. Oh my God, thank you everybody for watching. This is just awesome here. Bonoche uh, to all my friends down in Brazil. All right, Stephen Oskis, any new brush recommendations? Yeah, so um, you guys know that I love my purdies. Um, our standard, like my big three, my big three brushes, my go-to, never fail, top of the line, premium stuff, um, wall brush, which would end up being like exterior, you know, if you're painting siding and things like that, is the Pro Alasco Swan. It's a three inch thick, straight cut beaver tail handle. Just, I mean, everything you want a brush to do, it just does perfectly. It's just awesome. It cleans up easily. The stiffness is just right. After three uses, three washes, it even gets better. Uh, it gets just a little more stiffness in the brushes. The ends flag out a little more. It's a wonderful thing. Um, one of the most pleasurable brushes to use is, uh, boy, it's, it's kind of a toss up between Purdy Pro Extra Elasco, which is a two and a half inch thick, straight cut, long handle used for interior um, wall cutting and ceiling cutting and then exterior trim. And then it's a toss up between, you know, so that handles your exterior water-based paintbrush, your interior cutting and ceiling brush, and then there's the enamel brush. Um, I absolutely love, I love, love, love the, um, uh, 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 the, <laughs> it's the green. Oh, it's my little polyester brushes. I, I absolutely love those things. My sprigs. Um, they are just wonderful. Two and a half inch. They're a little bit thinner, uh, but they got the nice beaver tail as well too. Uh, Nylox and, and uh, just amazing brushes. So my big three are those three. I had a lot of brushes running through my head right there, but honestly, those are the three that we stock for the company. And those are the three that I've used for a lot of years. Um, I will be doing, uh, if you guys hold tight, uh, in the next four weeks or so, um, I was actually tasked by Purdy to uh, basically pick out my favorite stuff in their catalog, which they kind of do once a year, some new stuff, uh, some deep cuts, some things that people don't really know about. And obviously I'll be, I'll be focusing on the big three as well too, but I do actually have a new exterior brush uh, that I've been messing around with. Um, one of the things that I wanted to fill a need for was, you know, we do a lot of like Sherwin-Williams Loxon XP stuccos and masonry stuff. It's just a two, two uh, it's a two coat self-priming masonry system. One of the longest lasting finishes you will ever, ever have on the face of the planet. 
And uh, we need something stiff for that because normally we're doing stucco and things like that. And the Pro-X Road is really good, but I was looking for something with even more backbone. And uh, Chinex Elite, man, I've been messing with those. And those are some substantial brushes as well, too. So, yeah, I like that stuff. Of course, I've been messing around with a lot more 18s, either the Colossus or the White Doves, things like that. That's not brushes, though. But either way, yeah, those are the fun things. Um, if you if you ever want to nerd out, um, you go deep into Purdy's website. And you will find all sorts of wonderful stuff, some badger hair stuff and some all this other stuff. And it is absolutely wild when you go a couple levels deep in that. So, yeah, super fun stuff. Steven, thanks for the recommendation there. Let's see who else we got. Hey, everybody. Oh, Carney from ZK. How's it going, Carney? Good to see you. Steven, worked for a company my whole painting career, looking at starting up myself. Any advice for starting up? Thanks all the way from Scotland. Hey, man, I absolutely love this. We are getting more and more uh, people from Ireland, Scotland, and England uh, interacting with the show. And I absolutely love it because they have a brushing ethos over there where the highest achievement, the highest level and appreciation for brushing is like the ultimate realization of a craftsperson. I am a big fan of that because I only owned a sprayer uh, maybe 14, 13 years ago. Uh, and I've been in this trade for 29 years. So I've been brushing a long time and I've probably hand finished uh, just as many windows, cabinets, everything else as I have spray finish. So, uh, Stephen, um, the best advice I could give you is number one, email me, nick at nickslavic.com. And I have a list of resources that I send out for people who are just starting out or thinking about starting out. There's a couple books, there's a spreadsheet, there's a couple words of advice, there's things like that that I've collected over the years that have really helped. Um, one piece of advice that is probably unsatisfying, but literally might be the best piece of advice ever is this is hard. This is hard. Starting your own business. I mean, everybody knows those crazy, you know, uh, statistically, uh, those statistical rates of failure uh, for entrepreneurs and businesses. Not many make it. And the, the statistic that's been rattling around in my head a lot is only 4% of businesses basically employ more than about 10 people in the United States as a whole. What that tells you is that it's hard. If it was easy, there'd be a hell of a lot more people doing it. So if at times when it feels hard, it feels like your day has a little more friction than when you were, used to work for somebody else, you have to remember it's hard, but anything good is. There is a risk and reward profile of people like me and people like who watch this show and other people who start their businesses where we are willing to risk an enormous amount for a bigger reward. Not everybody has that. That doesn't make you good or bad or, or uh, anything like that. It just is. And you can train a little bit of that into you, but people naturally have this predilection for risk. Some people don't want to risk at all, and that's fine. They're not bad people. But if you feel like you want to risk, understand that you have to give an appropriate risk for an appropriate uh, reward. One of the biggest things that I would change, uh, the next piece of advice, uh, this kind of dovetails with it, uh, would be something I would change about the industry too, which is if you're going to go off on your own, I commonly get this phrase, which is, hey, listen, uh, if Nick won't pay me $35 an hour to paint, I'm going to start my own business and charge $45 an hour. But what you don't understand is that the reason a painting business can only pay you 20, 25, 30, 35 is because they have to pay for a lot of other stuff like employment taxes, work comp, insurance, liability insurance, all the vehicles, all the paint, all the equipment, all the training. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're going off on your own, you're going to have those expenses too. You may not think that you may think, well, I'm just going to charge a little bit more and make it. I'm 
I'm assuming that it takes somewhere between 35 and $55 of revenue generation just to keep a business running. And then you need to charge over that if you ever want to take any money home for yourself. The biggest miscalculation that first year or, or people who are just starting their painting businesses off is that they don't assign a cost to their own labor. I did when I first started. If you, this is how you have to think about this. Everybody's big on bashing uh, the coating manufacturers because it's we look at that gallon every time we buy it. We look at the receipts. We have to pay the bill. So naturally, we're very critical of it. What painters always forget is that materials is usually only 15% of your revenue. Labor can be as much as 40, 50, 60, even 70% when you're a sole proprietor, when you're a single person. So imagine this. I want you, the challenge for this entire industry is to assign yourself your own labor rate. If you had to pay yourself, uh, I would start off at least $30 an hour. Um, if you can do a little bit more, 35 or 40, I would do that. I would work that into every single job and say, you can't just take the revenue, pay for the paint and everything else is profit. That's not the definition of profit. Profit, the definition is you've paid for paint, you've paid for labor, you paid for overhead, everything left over is profit. It's not just every dollar after you pay for paint. So my challenge would be this, assign yourself a labor rate of 30, $35, give or take. Track your hours for the job and take that $35 an hour times how many hours you were on that job, times it by 1.25%, that's adding a 25% labor burden. And that would be the cost of your own labor. And when I do this job costing thought experiment with a lot of people like this, they, uh, they have two thoughts. Number one, before we do it, I charge the most, I make the most, I'm the best, people wait two years for me, I'm killing it, this is awesome, just a trail of happy clients. Um, when they do this job costing experiment with me, they find out that they are either making no money or actually losing money on jobs because a happy client doesn't necessarily mean that you made money on the job. Um, and if you had to pay yourself, you know, imagine if you weren't there and you had to pay somebody else to do that work, that's not free and you're not free either. So you don't necessarily have to write yourself a check, although it would be a good idea, um, you do need to sign yourself a labor rate uh, to chart to track your labor because labor will always be a bigger expense in materials. But since sole proprietors or single person painting companies don't ever really assign that number, that gets tough. Then they're not critical of it. If it isn't written down, it doesn't exist and you can't be critical of it. Your paint bill is written down every month and you're reminded by these big manufacturers that you have to pay it. So naturally we're critical of a price increase every year or this and that. If you are on a job and you use two or three times more time than you thought you would, very few people are critical of themselves in that. You should be beating yourself up about that. Earn or learn. If I didn't make money on this job, I need to figure out exactly why so I never repeat it. Owning a business is not a charity. You must provide maximum value to your clients. You must take care of your employees. But also, if you're not making any money for yourself, you might as well go get a job with somebody else. That's the rule. That's how businesses work. If there's no incentive for this and we're taking out a bunch of risk and there's no reward, it's not worth it. And I would urge you to do something else. But there is a big reward if you do this thing right. And so I would urge you to keep going. Give it a try. And like I said, Nick at NickSlavic.com and I can send you some resources. So we'll go through Instagram, a few more. Oh, man. Thank you, everybody, for watching. This is so awesome. Okay, let's go through... Facebook. Oh, we got a lot of nice questions here too. All right, everybody. Oh, some fellow Minnesota painters. Thank you guys for laughing at my daughter's joke. She's awesome. And I love that. <laughs> Michael Crane met a cow named Cheeseburger once. Mr. Blackhurst. 
All right, Anthony. Oh, my friend, Anthony Cade. Uh, question from Ashley, his wife. When you say each employee should generate $100,000 in revenue, is that for a fully trained person? If not, at what point in apprenticeship do you expect that? So typically, here's how our apprenticeship works, uh, generally. Um, we want people to obviously produce that as quickly as possible. Um, for the first three months, um, we want them to learn to paint walls under budget at a very high degree. We want them to learn all of our updates. Uh, and we want them to prep and deprep everything autonomously. In their next three months in our company, we add to that competency larger wall projects. Can you do a stairwell? Can you do an entry? Can you do a fort? Can you do multiple bedroom or bathroom projects in a row under budget? Also, can you operate a sprayer? Can you get paint in, paint out, and operate it? After that, they, at their six-month mark, their, compen their competency that is added that will limit their advancement if they don't hit is hitting our budgets. And we basically have, you know, an an hourly budget for every job. And we coach the living daylights out of them daily on plans in order to hit it. I'm out there coaching on site technically with their personality assessments and, and these plans, trying to get everybody under budget and, and let them know they're fully supported out there. So I would say we really want people producing at that rate uh, on our standard projects, uh, probably at about six months, or it's going to limit their advancement here. Uh, but they have a heck of a machine behind them to get this stuff. So uh, it's a it's a pretty good thing. All right, let me see what we got here. Oh, here we go. Uh, we have a question uh, from IG. Uh, Josh P. Shep, what's your go-to Sherwin-Williams exterior paint? Ah, love this one. Um, bread and butter, premium, go-to all the time, duration exterior flat. Um, that is a little bit different in the upper Midwest than it is other places. When you go to Florida, you'll see the satin, you'll see the low luster, you'll see something with the shine. Um, but yeah, we love, we love the duration flat up here. It's a... It is a bomb-proof, beautiful go-to paint, as long as it can be in stock. That's what we love. So, yeah. If not that, I usually go, like, let's say, you know, we have contingency plans for every one of our coatings. If you can't find duration, I basically go right down the line and say, what's the next best paint we can get? We'll, we'll do emerald and stuff, too, but I've been using duration for so many years. It is just, like, bomb-proof, go-to. Just absolutely love that paint. So, all right. Uh, let's see. I will. All right. Oh, we got Lauren watching. That's awesome. Okay. Anthony, so I know this will vary from job to job, but on average, how big or small are your crews that you send out to each project? Do you tend to take on more small jobs or big jobs? So here's, here's my thought about crew size here. Um, uh, vintage painters, I got your question here coming up next. Wave the magic wand. And as long as humans and feelings weren't involved, I would have one person crews. Those are the most productive, always one person crews. The problem is people get lonely. They like to work in teams. They find comfort in teams. And sometimes if you pair them up right, one plus one equals three instead of one plus one equals two. So uh, generally I'm a fan of the smallest crew that you can have. A two person crew is how we do it. We just know that there's comfort in this. We are a training company. There's people who have varying experiences and it's great to have somebody to rely on, especially if we have to get a van or tools somewhere. Some people have had uh, lots of experience on cabinets, but not trim, trim, but not cabinets. So it's nice to pair them up. It's kind of a comfort blanket thing. Um, three is you will usually not hit a budget ever on a three person project, um, unless big new construction, big commercial, big industrial, uh, of course, you want more painters than that or like big historic restorations. Then we have three, four, five and six sometimes. But on the site, we actually break it up into one or two person crews and then divide the project very carefully. Because if you just take six people thrown at a job, you won't get six X production uh, production. You will likely get three point two percent 
production, 3.2x production. And there's just a lot of, if, if there's not a strong leader on a job site to, to make sure everybody's constantly moving in the right direction, you can actually really lose uh, the capability of those extra people. So that's why we're really careful to do that sort of thing. So, all right. Let's see what we got here. We had vintage painters thoughts on Angie's list in the sort. So lots of stuff going on in that world. Um, there are some lawsuits around about certain places and things like that. Uh, and I will say this, um, there is no bad lead source. There are better lead sources than others. Um, personally, this is how I think about this stuff. I would much rather own my lead source generation or be in control of it or have options than put all my eggs in one basket. Um, if there was a local magazine who advertised to all of my ideal houses in the area, it would be very tempting to advertise in it. And I have and things like that before, but I, I would be, I would be leery of putting all my eggs in that basket because what if that magazine changes distribution, changes style, goes out of business, things like that. You have now put all your eggs in that basket and it goes away. Same thing with this sort of thing, which is no bad lead source. Uh, but you have to have the right purpose. I, I look up to some people in this industry who have built monster businesses from those sorts of lead sources. And it's a thing. It's just a game you have to be willing to play. It typically does not work well for the single person painter solely because you win on things like Angie's List and the like. If the second lead comes in, you jump on it with all the life force you have. You attack it. You immediately call back. You immediately go over things like that. The downside for the single person painter is you're painting all day and you don't necessarily want to answer every ding on your phone like that. So again, not bad. You just have to be willing to play the game or do the moves that's needed to win in that thing. Um, the When we're talking about lead sources, there's the things that I like and there's the things that actually produce leads. The things I like are the sexy stuff. I want TikTok to work. I want Instagram to work. I want Google AdWords to work. The problem is I do experiments every year and they don't produce as much as boring, unsexy, traditional stuff like flyers and mailers and newspaper and word of mouth and things like that. So uh, about 50 to 55% of my business is word of mouth referral and repeat clients, which I'm very fortunate to have. For a business our size, to have that many organic leads coming in is a godsend. And it's a testament to my awesome people out there taking care of our clients. But literally over half of our leads, uh, about half of our leads, I should say, come in from flyers and postcards and, and just traditional boring things where you print materials and you send them out and you get a return and it just works. So honestly, though, I get the the besides any advice for a new person. The second question I always get is, well, second or third, what do you charge for X? But then it's also how do you get leads? Number one, you can get leads with money or you can get leads with time or a combination of both. Starting off, I would not spend your money. A capital is very important to you. And sometimes it's feast or famine when you're when you're uh, starting off because you have to buy tools and equipment and things like that. So what I would do is I'd print out a bunch of flyers. I'd go down to my local municipality, my town. For 50 bucks, you can register as either a solicitor, a peddler, or something. There's a lot of towns that have these ordinances where you can't just go door to door selling stuff or putting flyers out uh, without a license. They want to know who's in town. So you go down there for 50 bucks, they give you a badge and the right to do it for 12 months or something. And you go around and I would put flyers in every dang door I saw of the, of the typical houses that I would like to work on. Magically, you're going to get some calls. And you know what? Even when you're walking around, if you have your painters closed and you're doing that, you're going to naturally see somebody in their yard. You're going to strike up a conversation. You might even get some estimates on the spot. For introverts like me, that's a tough one. That's a lot of human interaction. That's a lot of going up and talking to strangers and, and doing that sort of thing. But risk and reward, do you want it to work or not? 
that would be my advice for somebody starting off for the cost of a little bit of printing, maybe 50, 100 bucks in printing flyers and your time. Honestly, that's the biggest bang on return early on there. So that's what I would do. Uh, thank you, Vintage Painters, for that one. Ah, Porto Alegre. I was in Porto Alegre in Brazil. Thank you so much. Another one from Instagram, then we'll go to Facebook again here. How did you track individual production rates before you had the practice bedroom? Any other KPIs you track for each employee? Oh, yes, I love this one. Boy, this is a hardcore one. You're going to love this. Uh, DuraPro Painter. Uh, so we did something called the Reformation. Why do I like single person crews? Because I have tested it and it has proven to be the most profitable way to run a business, but it also is a huge weight emotionally and physically on one person. I broke my company up. This is about three years ago. I broke my company up into all single person painters and I tracked all their individual production. And I basically told people your job's on the line. Uh, if we don't hit these metrics, uh, I really wanted to kick production into gear. I knew that people were capable of more and we coached the living heck out of them. We trained the living heck out of them and I individually tracked their production every day. So even when we had an exterior and we would have four people on it, I would break the house into four sides and I would assign an hourly budget to the side. And every day they would tell me how far they got and I would assign a revenue number to that. How much of that house is done? What percentage of it is done? And it's pretty easy to assign that. Now, here's the thing. I have production rates for my company. They are not useful for estimating and for a lot of other things. Why? Because we're a training company. There is my production rate. Um, I've been doing this for 29 years. I can do that test bedroom in an hour and less than an hour and a half, hour and 23, hour and 24, hour and 25 minutes, give or take, something like that. Uh, so can a lot of the craftspeople in my company. Some of the new people that come in start at six, seven, eight hours, and within the first three to six months, go under four hours, which is a big goal in our company. So. We have production rates and you would say, what's a production rate for this? And I'll say, well, today I can probably tell you what a production rate is for this. The problem is two months from now, this person's going to do different or better. And another two months, it's going to be different. So we can't reliably use that with a charge rate to, to do estimating. So basically the best KPI is, which is agnostic of people's, you know, uh, age, experience, things like that is an hourly budget for project, which is basically you take the revenue for a project, you, you minus out the materials because you're not producing material cost in there. So on a thousand dollar job, uh, we typically, um, we estimate about 15% materials. So we would take off $150 and we would say there's $850 of a potential, you would have to produce $850 on this job, but how many hours? We divide by how much revenue per hour we would like to make. So for us, it's $65 an hour. We take 850 divided by 65, and that will give you how many hours it would take at most. If this person did it there, they would produce $65 of revenue for the company. And that's a big, big number for our company. And we track everybody based on that because I don't care how many linear feet of baseboard you can get. The hour of this bedroom has got to be done in four hours. So we can coach you up. We can tell you how to do it. I can give you advice. We can support you. We can show you how to do it, everything else. But that's the most agnostic way to do it. So instead of all these specific things like, oh, my God, hey, we're doing windows. Our, uh, our production rate for double hung wood sash Anderson 400 windows is this. But if you're not on that project and you have somebody else, that's kind of a useless production rate. So typically what I like is bigger chunks, which is like uh, conceptual things. How long does our average kitchen take? Our average kitchen is between 37 and 40 pieces. There's revenue that we charge for that. There's an hourly charge for that. And I, honestly, I don't have production rates written down for shaker versus uh, colonial style cabinets versus modernist flat panel, things like that. It doesn't matter. 
We charge X amount for this. I'm more concerned about big ticket items. How long does it take for somebody <clears throat> to strip popcorn on the average main level of a house, fix it all, uh, fix all the cracks, seams, um, stain kill, apply knockdown, and then paint it white? I like those big ticket sort of items like that. How much does it take? How many hours should it take to do an entire floor of trim and cabinets and walls? Things like that. Average decks. Um, it keeps it simple because otherwise there's an infinite amount of production rates you can do. So KPIs, which we think about, uh, one of one of the basic KPIs that almost nobody tracks very well is attendance, things like that. Um, we have a robust uh, tracker for attendance. Anytime anybody's late, whether people take PTO, they're off, there's COVID, there's this and that. Um, it's amazing. We had about 150 separate events where somebody did not just show up for work for a full day in the first quarter of this year. Lots of people have lots of things going on. They're not always bad things. It's not always being late or tardy. A lot of it is like, you know, hey, uh, I'm sick or I have a sick kid or I have a funeral or I have something going on at school. But tracking a KPI is basically, are you going to produce or are you going to paint with me 2,000 hours this year? That's 50 hours, uh, 50 weeks, 40 hours a week, something like that. And honestly, it's one of those things where uh, in the year of COVID, we were actually losing out on about 25% of the potential hours. Like people just work 25% less uh, due to all sorts of things. It was just what was going on at the time of COVID. So we actually had to ramp up like, hey guys, you know, if you want to be eligible for raises, you kind of need to show up 40 hours a week for this job. So we we pumped everybody back up in gear, got them going and, uh, and kept going. So yeah. Okay. Back to uh, <laughs> Phil Klein. Thanks, man. Um, oh yeah. Jesse. Um, cabinet refinishers impact 2022. Uh, we will see you there. Jesse, a fellow Minnesota painter. Uh, can't wait for that. Um, Austin Schumacher just joined the PCA. Welcome, man. And if there's anything I personally can do for you, you've got guys like Jason Paris, like me, uh, the entire board and all the members here for you. So Austin, whatever you need, welcome. And uh, you will not be disappointed. This is a good group of people. So, ah, Gerardo here from Connecticut. Good to see you, man. It's been a while since we sat in the same room together. So, oh, here we go. Mr. Ellison Bradley, my man, uh, a fellow retreat or uh, who's been on a retreat with me. Hey, brother, Rachel and I are seriously discussing bringing a, uh, on a couple crew of actual employee painters uh, to complement our subcontractor. How do you recommend I find painters knowing uh, as you do that I'm not a painter? Find a painter to be a crew leader and then hire a couple painters to work with them and equip them. Yeah, so uh, you should talk to Lauren Fink of Apex Painting too. She is actually building out a company this way as well. If, and I, I actually did some consulting for a franchise uh, last year, and one of the big uh, funnel constriction points of that was most of the franchise owners didn't know how to paint, but they were good business owners and good managers. So they needed to start up a painting division. So what you have to do is very carefully select what you would call a foreman, a superintendent, a somebody like that. And I would assign, I would assign them kind of like a, Master crafts person, um, HR, recruiting, training role, where they are the keepers of the culture. They, they need to be your eyes and ears on the field. They, they need to uh, go out and recruit the painters, test them out a little bit maybe for a day or two, uh, rate them on a standard system so they can report back to you. Not any of this just, you know, finger in the wind, feelings-based hirings. Uh, but they have to, you have to work with them to get a recruiting system down, a testing system, an onboarding, a training, and then a rating and review system. And that will take actually a lot of the um, human production uh, internally off your belt. Uh, you know, then there's project production and estimating and things like that. But Bradley, honestly, I would, I would search around for somebody who shares your core values, interview them. Um, if they say they know how to paint, just bring them on 
as a, as a, you know, either a 1099 or give them a, a, you know, a 15 or 30 day test period where you each have an out. If you don't like it, um, give them a couple jobs, see how they do, see how their leadership is, share the vision of the company and see if they're interested. If they're just a workaday painter, maybe they, maybe they're not the best, um, you know, person to recruit and share your vision and grow this thing and be kind of the marshal, the field marshal out there, uh, rallying the troops. Uh, you got to find somebody who's got the good personality type. So I would definitely, if you're disprofiling these people, I would look for somebody who's self-starting, very utilitarian, uh, utilitarian motivated, and somebody who's a people person and kind of a natural leader sort of thing. Now, if you can find that, plus somebody who paints, good. I would grab hold of them and uh, and take care of them. But I would I would craft a compensation plan that would play to that person's risk and reward, which is they probably don't want to take as much risk as you, Bradley, which is starting your own painting company from scratch, which is a, an amazing bit of risk, also with a possible amazing bit of reward. They may not want all that risk, but they probably don't just want a straight paycheck. So I would actually uh, think about making them the driver for that sort of division of the company and have some sort of profit incentive if they perform highly. It'll give them that extra thing to later nights, earlier mornings, make that extra phone call, train that extra person, uh, pour yourself into those people a little more than you normally would. And uh, if you set up the incentive program, right, it would be uh, it would be a great thing for them and might spur them on and, and show them that you actually want them to share in the vision and the future of this company. So that's an awesome thought experiment. There's a lot of people messing around with this right now. Um, and I would love to know uh, what a job description and a comp plan looks like. And that would be an awesome thought experiment, Brad, sometime. Jesse Allen, see you on your shop walkthrough on May 18th, as well as uh, Taryn Brian Santos with Fresh Painters Corporate. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to have you down here. Yeah, we're actually having uh, the Fresh Coat Corporate people coming down here and uh, doing some uh, um, eyewitnessing of what we do, which is going to be pretty cool. So um, Thomas Powell, didn't you just shave? Yeah, man. So listen, this is what it is up here. Um, I do not have any superpowers besides basically growing facial hair. So I had a mustache for about three days and then it just started filling in all around it. So again, we're back to, we're back to beard stuff in no time here. So, uh, Nate Mitchell, uh, let's see, Virginia beach question. Uh, what water-based primer do you recommend on cabinets, uh, in spite of that oil-based primer? So obviously you'll have to pry oil primer from my cold dead hands. And I, I'm assuming in the next couple of years, it probably will be that. Uh, because the VOC restrictions are only going up. Uh, the problem is in 14 years, I've never had a failure. I've never had a, uh, uh, a peeling. I've never had chipping. I've never had bleeding or anything with oil primer and the right oil primer. So if I had to go to a water-based primer, obvious, this is a little different. Everybody automatically goes to the sticks, uh, to the cabinet coat primers, to uh, just the standard, you know, the, um, you know, one, two, three, Zinsser, one, two, three, things like that. Honestly, I would go to a hybrid primer um, between Advance and I'm trying to think. Sherwin's got at least two, at least two hybrid primers, I believe. I would go to those first. Um, they they have the same um, behavior as a lot of the hybrid paints do, which is they take a little longer to cure, but they also have some of the good traits of the old oil too. So what you lack in maybe the fast dry you also get some of the stain blocking and some of the sandability and things like that. So honestly, my first pick would be a hybrid. Um, if you couldn't, now listen, I know that probably, unless you have a red aniline dyed cabinet, 
one or two coats of sticks is going to do just fine. And there's some uh, Sherwin water-based uh, extreme bond. I believe that does a really good, it's always extreme bond, extreme block. I think block is the oil bond is the water-based. Those will do fine. The problem is one out of 10 cabinets, they may not stick as well, or they won't stop the bleeding. And I'm not willing to roll the dice on 90% perfect. Cause if only 90% of the cabinets worked out and we basically had to buy new kitchens on the rest, it would negate all the other revenue that I did for the other stuff. So I would go to that. Now, if tomorrow all of my, all of my um, oil-based primer disappeared, I have a wealth of experiments to go back on. Every single main readily available off the shelf water-based primer that we all know and talk about, I have tested. There are cabinet doors right up there where I've tested. I've grabbed a whole kitchen full of oak cabinet doors. I did some uh, in um, uh, controls uh, in the experiments where I didn't prep and some that I did prep and did the same application of primer. And oil primer never failed in anything, even when I didn't prep over over uh, uh, nothing, no sanding, no vacuuming, no tacking, anything. The water-based stuff, again, nine out of 10, they work fine, but sometimes they failed in a colossal way. And I have one cabinet door up there where you can walk by it, shave your finger like that, it'll shave it all right off. That is embarrassing and I'm not willing to uh, stake my company up. But if all my oil primers disappeared, I have those experiments, I would immediately go out and buy the next 10 most readily available water-based primers, get in my shop, do some experiments for myself and not take the word of advice and, and stake my business on the lawnmower from the internet there. I would, I would take his recommendations, but I would always do scratch tests and things myself. Nate, hope that helps. Mark Blackers, what's the best way to stop static shock when spraying oil-based primer in a booth? I seem to get a little shock off the fast rack door rotisserie. Never experienced that. Uh, number one, I would look at what's on your floor probably. Um, that might be the biggest thing. I would also uh, make sure your booth is grounded if you have a legitimate booth. Um, one of the one of the problems when people kind of do makeshift booths is they take a lot of polyethylene or uh, plastic and things like that. That can make a lot of static too. So um, we have a legitimate code approved booth. Everything is all grounded, electrically safe, uh, fire suppressed and all that other stuff. We've never experienced that. Um, we use a whole bunch of floor paper or grip right and stuff on the floor. We've also never experienced that. And uh, honestly, I've been working with Fast Rack for years and years and years. Never once in my old shop or new shop or anything have I touched a piece and got a static shock from. So I would start looking for, I would look in for ground stuff. I would see how much plastic you have up around there. And I would look for the major electrical things in the area and just make sure everything is grounded properly, you know, with a big copper rod down on the ground, things like that. Or even have an electrician look at it, something like that too. So. Uh, let's see. Oh, also, anti-static. Mark, where's some of these bad boys around? These are anti-static. I'd try those out. What the heck? It's uh, they're all polyester. You're not going to swish around and cause a static shock and things like that. So, uh, Seth Hostetter, what is your standard for back rolling and brush brushing exterior board and batten stucco smart siding? James Heidi, uh, James Hardy. Does it all need it? No, it absolutely does not. Uh, just like cabinet doors, there is no need to back brush or back roll cabinet doors that are smooth. If you have these beautiful cherry doors with no open pores, no need to back brush or back roll. We don't need to. Excuse me. The same theory applies to outside. This house right here that I built, the Slavic house, is brand new LP smart side. And I sprayed every inch of it. I did not touch it with a roller or a brush 
perfect coverage. Everything looks great. Even those end pieces and stuff like that, they were pre-primed. Um, uh, and some of them, the, uh, the carpenter primed them too. I sprayed it. They covered in perfectly. No big deal. Um, when we have the SOP for my company is if there's any bare wood, it gets primed. And when you prime it, you have to back brush or back roll. Um, when there's porous wood, like when we do a farmhouse restoration and stuff like that, we slather on the primer. We take a primer that's a little bit thinner, like a Sherwin-Williams um, multi-purpose latex primer. It's just a light blue can. It's just their like tried and true thing. It is a non-sexy primer, but honestly, it's never bled, never peeled uh, in the history of me using it. Most of our monster restorations, uh, you know, like the big green one we have up there in the corner, I've used that stuff on. It's, it's just thin enough where you can like feel it penetrate the wood. And when we spray it, we spray it on heavy. We're slathering it on with a brush, with a roller, whatever we need to, to fill it in. It soaks in, it dries, it almost tightens up the wood. It's just a beautiful substrate like that. But spraying alone will not fill the pores and bare wood. You need to back brush, back roll. And once you fill the pores, you don't need to do it again. Um, so one of the things that we do is on our historic restorations, our goal is to fill all the pores in the house during the prime phase. If we don't, we back brush or back roll the first top coat. But after that, the goal is not to do it. It should, you should already have hundred percent pore fill at the prime phase. Worst case scenario, you do it during top coat too. That's our, that's our thing, but no, they don't need it, especially new stuff. My God, if, if somebody was putting a brand new hardy board house, uh, minus a, a couple weird cuts or end pieces where you dab on primer with a brush, no need. Hammer Temple, Nylox, thanks that. <laughs> Adam Northen's called. Oh, another fellow Minnesota painter. I love those pants. I've worn them during every spray day on my current job, and they really keep my pants clean. Easy on, easy off is exactly. And, yeah, like you said, hammer pants, baby. These things are nice. They're not the paper ones where you rip them getting on. They won't fit over boots, things like that. These things are substantial, like reusable sort of things. And you wipe your hands or you happen to run your painter's tool across them, you're not going to rip them and things like that. So, yeah, hats off, man. You you know, it's good stuff here. So, Don, uh, good afternoon from Ottawa, Canada. Love it. Uh, John Milkovich, uh, are you coming to Impact? Yes, I am. John Milkovich, I will be there. Uh, Jason Paris and I will be there. We'll be flying in together and hanging out and supporting Corey and everybody else there. And I cannot wait. The list of people going there is like my hit list of the go-to. And it's going to be awesome. If you've not met the Kuipers, if you've not met Tanner, if you've not met any of those other people, that's the place to be. Uh, it's there. Um, let's see. Aaron Michael Steininger. Rain contingency. I'd like to know more. Oh, here we go. Delayed starts. How and what do you do decide to shift uh, gears and either go inside and call it a day? Yes. So... This is a superpower of my team. Um, we have a three-person team every day that deals with the schedule for the company. And they receive updates at 3 p.m. via Slack from every single crew in the field on a standard format. Here's the job we're on. Here's how many hours of the budget we used. Here's how many hours are in the budget. Here's the percentage of the budget we used. Here's the percentage of the job we're done. And then they look at the schedule and say, are we still on a, are we still on time to deliver this project at this date? If they are, Great. We just leave the schedule as is. If they're falling behind or going ahead, now they quick need to change the schedule. And that's how we keep the schedule rolling. Between three and five every day, that three-person team gets together. They put their heads together, discusses all the variables, look at the weather in the summer, and make the change. Um, generally, I will tell you this, Aaron, from all these years of doing this, uh, from when I was 10 years old to now, Upper Midwest, Minnesota, if it's 30% rain chance or less, we go for it every day. Day, day. I have been horrified by the amount of times where it was like, oh, 30% rain. You're like, well, technically that's a third chance. If you actually look at how they estimate the percentage, 
it's not a, it's a 30% chance there. It's another different way of calculating that. But I have gone inside or not worked so many bluebird days when it said there was a 30% chance of rain. 40 is when it starts getting interesting to us. 50%, we know it's going to rain sometime during the day and we figure it out. Here's the thing, people. Scheduling is hard. It's never going to be easy. There's not an app that does it for you. There's not an app that takes into account all the uh, contingencies, things like that. And uh, it's one of those things you've got to put human time towards every day. You've got to take in all the factors, your people being sick or not, how the jobs are doing currently, the weather, what jobs do you have up next. And honestly, one of the sneaky little tricks that my company does is we seek out and prep people for our rain day list, which is a list of uh, jobs that have given us the okay that on eight to 12 hour notice, we can trigger and go inside. So what that means is at somewhere between three and 3 PM and 7 PM, if all of a sudden the rain shifts or it's like, I'm just not feeling good about this thing, we can actually go to that rain day list and say, Hey, we have an opportunity to get to you tomorrow if you want. And people are typically very happy with that because creates people are not good at getting to people very soon. So that's how we end up doing it. And my production team, it's even higher risk when we have a four-day work week, which is one of the big kickbacks of a four-day work week is, hey, what happens when you get rained out on Thursday? Do you force everybody to come in Friday? And the answer is no. My team is so high speed that they can basically move almost an entire company inside if they have 12 hours notice because of all the work they did. And it doesn't go unnoticed. They, this is a superpower. Uh, we don't like to force overtime. We don't like to force a change in the schedule because people change their lives depending on that four-day work week. Um, so we're very careful for that. And yes, you're going to get clunky stuff. You're going to get heavy dew in the morning. You're going to get a scattered shower on a deck and you can't work that day. It is what it is. We're creative. We'll see what we can do. And it's just a lesser of two evils thing all the time, Aaron. So, all right, we'll get back to IG here in a second. Uh, da, 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 da. Wow, today, after many years of spraying oil, I got a ton of static and I got shocked by touching metal, John Harrell. Yeah, that's weird. It's just never happened to me. I mean, listen, I've I've sprayed thousands of gallons of paint, especially on these old metal sheds, uh, inside expanded metal trusses, things like that. I've never once been shocked. That's, that's just a weird thing. Um, yeah. Adam, speaking of spraying trim, when spraying trim throughout a whole house, how do you minimize overspray from area uh, from ruining a finish in another, especially when spraying something like a bunch of door frames in a hallway? Yeah, so uh, process number one, coating selection number two, uh, negative air uh, or a air scrubber number three. So process, fast and heavy. Um, the way that you can minimize uh, a lot of um, defects like just stuff getting in trim is number one clean job site you know you want to svt uh vacuum everything make it all clean putting stuff on heavy and moving fast will give that uh, paint enough time where if a speck of dust comes in sometimes depending on the coating it'll subsume it and kind of like uh incorporate it into the finish and even cover it like that uh, the old oil enamels were really good for this sort of thing where you could drop dust on it it would almost less like incorporate it into there and you wouldn't see it that old oil uh, enamels, but putting it on heavy, giving it lots of time um, wet to coagulate and sort of like mix around. That's a good way. Also, there's um, coating selection is a big thing. You want something that you can put on super heavy that will stay open long enough to level out, but then also kind of flash dries. And you guys know I'm a big fan of Scuff X. I mean, that's just like it was made for stuff like that. It's beautiful. It's Teflon to the touch. You can lay it on heavy. It doesn't sag. Uh, it's open just long enough to kind of like level out, but then it flash dries, which is really cool. So I would say a combination of that. And then knowing that no job site is ever perfect, it just kind of is what it is. But we do spend a lot of time shop backing underneath the baseboards, corners and things like that, really doing a good job with that. 
Also, Adam, we love our old brown bag trick too, because no job is dust free. Even on enamel, you can run a piece of floor paper or brown bag or something like that, craft paper, over it really lightly. You can kind of get rid of the little nubbins and stuff, especially on scuff X. So, Michael Sharp, any place to find flyer templates, cabinet finishing specifically? Yeah, man. So here's the deal. Just search the magic of Google. Search uh, painting cabinet flyers, painting flyers, cabinet refinishing flyers, things like that. You're going to find a ton. You want to give, here's the best advice I can give you. Obviously, you want a picture of either a sample door, a before and after or something. That's fine. Um, I really like to tell people what your unique value proposition is. So on my flyers, actually... Hold tight. I have an example. I'm going to go get over in my static-free pants. Go get you a flyer. So, when I go out on estimates, the thing that runs through my head is the clients want to ask you one question. And they will never ask it, which is, are you going to take advantage of me? That's, that's my feeling with most estimates. And every question they ask, what kind of paint? What's the process? Is there a down payment? Is there a warranty? Things like that. How long have you been in business? Are you insured? They're just trying to figure out if you're going to take advantage of them. So here is uh, one side of a cabinet flyer that I do, uh, that I have done this winter. And you'll notice on here that, yes, there's a picture of a cabinet. It's got some shine. We just want to show people, okay, knee-jerk reaction. We check the box. We can give you a professional sprayed finish. Now, the important thing is I actually put a sample cabinet door to show them. A before and after picture, to me, takes up too much space because you have to have an oak kitchen and then you got to have a white kitchen. For me, this says it all right here, which is here's our process. We're going from oak to that. We get it. And then people assume, you know, from there, it's a reasonable assumption that they think we do that to oak cabinets, which we do. Now, notice <laughs> here's, our oh, here, here's our value proposition, our promise to you. We help with color. We clean, we move furniture, we communicate. We specialize in working around you and your family. Notice it says nothing about primer, about prep, about enamel, about spray equipment, about any of that stuff. These are the things that people want to know. Oh, sorry, everything's reverse in mine. Uh, these are the things that people want to know. We help you with color. Number one, the biggest concern of my clients is not even price and not even timeline. It's color. And if you can help them with that, that's a big thing. We clean. We just clean up after ourselves. How novel. Contractors are horrible at this stuff. We move furniture. That's a huge thing. There's people, busy professionals. They're taking kids to school. They're working, working from home, things like that. They don't have time to move their king size bed and their crazy dressers and things like that. So we help with that. We communicate. It's a big thing. We're high velocity communication via email, text, call, things like that. And we specialize in working around you and your family. We want people to know that we are the white glove clean. We are the concierge level service, thing like that. And of course, we just have to list the services that we do here. But then we direct everybody to the website. So aesthetically pleasing, keep it simple, value proposition right away. We get tons of compliments on these things. So this happens to be interior, exterior during the season. So again, this is the flyer that stops right about now, early May. And it switches to, we are now in exterior season, you know, things like that. So you can see... This is a satisfying picture. We don't have to have a before and after. We can actually see the before and after in one picture. And we show one of our awesome craftspeople doing this. This is uh, Alex, uh, one of our senior people. And then we have a really good example of just us painting a house. It's got some sharp colors on it. People can see. It's just, it's what we do, taking, taking care of houses. So big value proposition for this. And keeping it simple is a big thing. So I hope that helps. Uh, Oscar Milan, how's it going? Daniel Armstrong, why do you use flat instead of satin for your exteriors? 
because we always have. Um, actually, uh, <laughs> no, that's not. That's the thing I rally against. We've always done it this way. Here's the deal. Here's why we use flat. Um, in the past, I love my Benjamin Moore. I love my Sherwin Williams. In the past, because of the moisture and temperature differences and craziness here in Minnesota, I have used the highest of the high end, the emeralds, the durations, the auras, the things like that. And when I did them in low luster or satin or eggshell and things like that, they have a tendency to actually bubble with moisture. If that wood isn't perfectly dry, if there's even the slightest bit of moisture in it and the sun hits it, you'll actually get a lot of bubbling. Um, here's my theory. I've, I've never been able to track down a paint scientist who could tell me the exact reason why. My feeling after 29 years is that the shinier the paint, the more rubbery it is, and it actually traps more moisture. I can tell you this. I don't know if that's the reason. There might be some chemical difference that I don't know about. It might be a completely different paint when you go from flat to something with shine. All I know is that we've never experienced it with flat, and we deal with a lot of wood houses and historic homes out here, and I'm not willing to take a chance uh, doing an entire deeply colored house in a low luster and having it all blistered because that is a nightmare and it never stops. You go back and fix it and then the next portion will blister, next portion, next portion, next portion. So uh, that's why we do it. Now, I say that knowing when I go down to Florida, it's not the case. There's a lot of semi-gloss houses down there and they and they weather just fine. So, so um, do what uh, the best craftspeople in your area advise. That is my, that is my advice to you. So, all right. XC Painter, production rates are variable. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Bradley, Lauren's my dude. We've been in contact almost daily. I knew you guys would find each other. Uh, Lauren Fink is a bright mind and uh, awesome person. We're very fortunate to have her and her family in this industry. So yeah, Lauren Fink, do, 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 do. Oh, love it, love it, love it. Uh, Fernando, oh man, I wish I could speak Portuguese. I am so sorry. Uh, Boa noite, that's about as far as I can get. And obrigado, thank you for watching. Lauren Fink, uh, I just hired this person Nick Slavic is describing. We should chat. Uh, there we go. I knew you guys would do it. Michael Sharp, Centurion 1 and 2K systems are amazing. Agreed. So people think I'm against those things. I am not. I love them. I'm a fan. Malaysi, um, all the things, Centurion, Envirolac, all that stuff. Love them. The problem is there's no distributors in my area. And I can't run a business off a of mail order, especially in the winter. So if somebody were to move as close as Sherwin-Williams, Benjamin Moore, Ace Hardware, Hirschfields to me and do those things, we would use those and a lot more of them. But there are not. And our business, uh, we, <laughs> we're probably, I mean, we might be spending 10K a month in enamel. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, 10K a month in enamel. And we need it readily. We need it daily. And clients change. Our people change. We need extra stuff. And honestly, I love the stuff. And the biggest pushback is it's just not readily available in my area and there's not a supply chain system for it. So I'm a fan, but come closer. That would be a great thing. Advanced primer blocks and scratches when sanded. Uh, not been my experience. I appreciate your input. Uh, let's see. You don't ever say the name of my company, um, Nate Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking to advertise your company uh, to other painters from across the country, it's probably a poor place. I mean, if you're looking for clients, uh, you know, you might want to toss your name around, but I don't normally, I, I let, I'm here for the people, not the painting companies. Uh, so yeah, one of those sort of things. So Jesse McCandless. Uh, hey, Nick, late to the party. Sounds like exterior talk. Uh, what's your ideal ladder setup for a two-man team doing exteriors? Do you guys find yourselves using ladder jacks and planks? No, we do not. We keep it simple. Um, for a two-person team, here is my standard uh, set up for ladders. I would have a four foot step ladder. I would have a six foot step ladder. I would have a 16 foot extension ladder, level or legs, 20 foot extension ladder, level or legs, 24, 28, 
with leveler legs. I would also have two pivot tools, you know, the black wedges like that. I would have two braces that you can put on standoffs from the house. I'm trying to think what I would have. Nothing else. I would have a, I would have 32 and 40 foot ladders as a company, maybe two or three of them that they can use. But each of my crews has a standard setup like that, just standard Werner aluminum ladders with leveler legs. And uh, yeah, uh, rubber boots on the top, no socks. Come on, professional painters don't put their dang old socks on the tops of those things. Um, yeah, rubber boots. Yeah, that, that's about what I would do. Um, I'm sure there's something I'm missing in there. We're actually just going through all this stuff. So, and Jesse, we're just kind of doing, a, this is an open show, anything you want to ask. So, uh, da, 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 da. Ah, Jesse McCandless, and thanks again for the deck SOP. I'm I'm on to a few this month. Good luck, man. I love it. Uh, da, 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 da. Nate, thanks a lot for the compliment, man. I appreciate it. And Angel Damaso, what products or tip do you like for painting brick? I know it adds maintenance. Ah, this is, I mean, there's a lot of things where I say, well, I don't know. You could do this. You could do this. Locks on XP, two coat system right over masonry, even previously painted stuff. It's self-priming. It's bomb-proof. It is the finish. When I apply it, I know it'll last longer than any other paint, any other stain finish that I do. Um, there is a stucco, acrylic stucco, Chamber of Commerce here in New Prague. I must have painted 14, 15 years ago. It looks exactly the same as it does. Blasted by the south and west on Main Street. Sun, dirt, everything looks beautiful uh, when I do that. When I paint these historic stucco homes, if somebody really wants to paint unpainted stucco, fine. I'll, I'll brief them on it. But when I do, literally, I've not seen one of those fail since I started my own company 15 years ago. So that's, I mean, it is bomb proof. <laughs> Paint, everything takes maintenance. I will not promise that to a client because you never know you can't control moisture and stuff like that. But I know when I do a Loxon job, it's going it, to, out Loxon XP, it's going to go forever here. So uh, let's see, a couple more, then we'll switch back to IG here. Uh, will flat paint fade more though? Yes. Absolutely. I live in South uh, South Louisiana and humidity is the killer. I agree. Then now you have to pick lesser of two evils. In Arizona, I would not technically go for flat paint because it'll probably get blasted. I would go something with a little bit, but you have to decide, is it better to have a faded house or a peeled house? I would always rather have a faded house. Honestly, it takes less prep. You can just wash it, get the dust off, put another coat on. Um, Michael Sharp, I got Centurion in my, <laughs> in my town this year. Awesome, man. Uh, da, 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 da. And Jesse Allen, love locks on. Can't find locks on. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting going into the exterior season about, you know, uh, in Minnesota, it's still like 30s at night and things like that. And we're already in May. And literally in a week or two, when everything pops and it's going to be 78 degrees every day, I believe every coating manufacturer will probably sell out immediately of every exterior paint because we're taking a time where normally in April we can start getting outside and the demand gets you know flattened out over a while. Now, I think every painter in Minnesota is going to buy all the paint the second it does. So it's going to be a very interesting time here. So let's go to IG and see what we got. Sorry, guys. I've been... Uh, I've been neglecting IG here. So thank you guys so much. Oh, appreciate everybody watching here. Absolutely love the pin tours down in Brazil. Thank you guys for everything. Ah, somebody mentioned bare acrylic Elkid enamel undercoater. Ooh, that's cool. I've not tried that one yet. I would love to. Uh, very interesting experiment. We actually got some, I, I will forget the name of the exact thing, but it's basically a bare cabinet and trim enamel. Um, we tried an untinted can of that sprayed over some passage doors and the finish was awesome. I mean, it kind of felt like scuff XE advancey sort of thing. It was a pretty good product, man. I like that stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm agnostic to all the paint brands. It's just kind of like what we, what we do. So, uh, Adassa Splash decorating bin shellac and PPG breakthrough. Absolutely. Tried and true. 
Uh, semantic music. What's your take on fine paints of Europe? Love the stuff. Absolutely love the stuff. And I love companies who make that. I love the ethos of it and everything else. Um, two reasons. Um, we dabble in it. I have well, my green cabinet door right up there. Uh, let's see, IG, I'm going to show you. My beautiful emerald green cabinet door up there is Holland Like Brilliant. And it was the first time I really dug deep on the SOP with Zach Kenny, And I started doing some samples uh, for a cabinet maker. And it's an awesome product. Now, biggest complaint ever. Uh, Zach Kenny always screams at me, Nick, you got to be the one doing this up there. You got to be doing it, uh, whatever. The problem is there is a market here for it in Minneapolis, St. Paul, but it's not the same market as in um, Miami, Boston, San Francisco, things like that. We don't have as much a demand here for it. I think the general public and the designers probably need to be coached up on it. I know there's people operating with it. I know they do it. But again, here's the thing. We have one fine paints of Europe store, I think, in North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Five states, one store. It's 45 minutes from my house. Um, I got a sneaky bit of intel uh, from one of my best friends in the industry that there's probably only five or six people really buying it here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. There's not that many people out there doing it. Uh, one of my friends is, is likely going to take over that market very quickly because he is perfectly set up for it. He's in with all the clients and he's really good at it. So I'll be watching him, but I like the stuff. Um, we need to educate our clients though, because honestly, when you look at a lot of the clients we work for, they don't even ask us what brand we use, what shine we use. They just trust that we do good stuff. So it's way less of a, we need somebody, we know about fine paints of Europe and we need somebody to apply it. I would have to educate my people in a very special way. And honestly, right now, I'm not sure my clients would find a lot of um, value in it, but that's me. I'm a residential repaint guy and we're dealing in the suburbs and not necessarily the city center. So I'm fully aware that I might just not be touching the people, but I love the stuff. I mean, it's, I've used oil paint for a long time. I still used uh, back in the, I've been around the industry just long enough where I used to buy Benjamin Moore Imperval, the real oil, the red can and brush it on and it was beautiful. And then I've seen it change. I've seen other oil enamels change. I've used tractor enamel when all the other oil enamel changed. For God's sakes, Sherwin-Williams used to make a Promar wall paint and eggshell oil. It used to just be oil wall paint at Sherwin-Williams. And I use that stuff. I had clients request it 12 years ago and you could still kind of get it and use it. And you would just roll and brush oil paint on walls. And it's beautiful, velvety, satiny, hard as a rock, scrubbable, not around anymore. So. I've used bad versions of oil. I've used good versions of oil. Uh, FP is the best. It is literally the best. It is the finest oil paint I've ever used. So yeah, I wish I could dabble in it more to tell you the truth. So, all right, more IG. Thank you guys for that. I really appreciate this stuff. <laughs> thank you guys for all the awesome stuff. Uh, Nook and Crannies, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. <laughs> what do you think about drip jobs? Ah, I will tell you this. I'm a fan of Tanner Mullen and I'm a fan of anything he does. His Facebook group, drip jobs, everything else. Um, right now, we have a very robust homemade system uh, that we do for that. It's simple, it's beautiful, it works. Tanner has introduced me to drip jobs. I've been introduced to a lot of the other stuff too. Everybody has something good. It's not, is this the app? Is this the thing? You have to ask yourself, is it right for you, for your business, your way of doing business and for this stage of your business. So listen, I will tell you this. What do you think about drip jobs? I will tell you this. I'm a huge fan of Tanner Mullen. Don't sleep on that dude. And I'm a big fan of everything he does. So uh, I'll actually be seeing him um, in the next week or two over at Corey Leister's event too. So uh, yeah, substantial dude, loves what he does. And uh, yeah, 
Oh, semantic looking for more fine paints of Europe stuff. Yes. Uh, hello, everybody. Do, 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 do. Let's see. Man, we got a lot of good uh, good stuff on here. Okay, here we go. Patrick Sessia, on appealing house, do you just try to feather out the edges or scrape to raw wood and prime? Um, kind of two things there. We always try to scrape to raw wood, but reasonably. And this is where we get into the subjectivity of painting, which is um, it's hard to deliver a standardized product to a client when you have a peeling house because you know how much paint is going to peel off. But it's very hard to tell them that 26% of the paint that looks okay is going to come off, but I can't really show you a picture of before. Like I can maybe show you before a picture of other jobs, but that one's a little different than yours. It hadn't been, you know, so you're not really going to be able to portray exactly what you do. If you have a steel entry door that's white and they want it red, there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And everybody can judge what the beginning, the middle, and the end is. With prep on a house, it's a little different. So here's what I do. Sometimes by telling the client what they're not going to get, you can actually tell them what they're going to get. I am very careful about telling them that we could do something illegal and stupid, which is on a historic home, let's just pressure wash it and spray a coat of paint on. You know, that's pretty simple, right? We're not legally allowed to pressure wash it. And, you know, we're not going to prime it. We're just going to spray a coat on. That is the worst thing you can do, but it's the cheapest. There's also a thing we can do, and this is called bookending. As, as a business owner and, a, and, a, and an estimator and, and that sort of thing, I like bookending things, telling people what they're not going to get. We could do the spray and pray. We could also strip your entire house down to bare wood, do all the rot repairs, two coats of oil primer, three coats of top coat, 10 colors, all that other stuff. And there's a big price for that. That's a four month paint job with a crew of four to six people. Now, somewhere in the middle lies something we call reasonable restoration. And this doesn't just apply to historic restoration. This applies to just peeling houses. We're very careful to show that there's the illegal version, the stupid version, and there's the all out museum restoration. What we offer is something in the middle, which is we are gonna spend 450 hours on your house, on this old Victorian house. And probably two thirds of it's gonna be prep and then some painting and then some cleanup at the end. That's the time we're gonna to devote to this. And we're not gonna get all the paint off. We're gonna get 90% of everything that comes off. We're gonna work on the other pieces. We're gonna get way more than any DIY or homeowner's gonna do. Uh, if you want us to feather all the edges and sand with uh, HEPA filters and stuff like that, we can. But again, that's all time and materials because you're basically trying to estimate if this house has been around for 140 years, you don't even know what kind of paint, how many layers, other things like that. And you're going to be estimating uh, how much time it's going to take to get all that stuff feathered. Feathering the edges of paint is not easy and usually doesn't work well because water-based paints, when you chip out a real thick chip, like an eighth inch thick or even a 16th inch chip, to feather that out, if any of that's water-based butyl or latex, it actually gets rubbery. And you can't, it's not easy like old oil paint or milk paint where it just feathers out like that. So sometimes you can't even do it. It takes forever to do that. So you just have to be uh, really careful and say, well, that's an option. Like we line item sanding of the houses and things like that and give people uh, as an option. So yeah, Patrick, hope that helped. Oh, Tiago Staler, thank you, my friend. Good to see you. Okay, we are caught up on IG and we are caught up on Facebook. All right, everybody. Um, Bilal Malas. What do you recommend? Uh, da, 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 da. What do you recommend for spraying trim and doors interior prime and finish coat? Um, when I when I have my choice, it's cover stain and satin scuff X. Beautiful bomb proof system if you can get it. Um, <laughs> uh, Thomas, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Okay, everybody, we've gone way over an hour. I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys. I also want to thank Trimaco.
for the awesome polyester, anti-static, washable, reusable pullover painter's pants. These things are awesome. They fit over work boots, which I'm a huge fan of. Again, it's the little things. They got the tool in the cell phone pockets. We got the front pockets like this. We got the back pockets for the walls and the other stuff. And of course, they call it a hammer loop, but we all know as painters, that is a rag loop because uh, we don't normally carry around hammers like that. So uh, thank you to Trimaco. I have links in the show notes if you want to track down anything from Trimaco. Uh, be nice to Trimaco. Like and follow them. Say good things and like and follow Ask a Painter Live. Kindest thing you can do for this show. Just share it, people. I really appreciate that. So, all right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. I appreciate this. And everybody have a good night. And we will see you next weekend. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.